close encounters of the first kind, sighting of an unidentified flying object, close encounters of the second kind, physical evidence of a UFO, close encounters of the third kind, actual contact. Columbia Pictures, in association with EMI, presents Close Encounters of the Third Kind. On this special episode of Movie Geeks United, we commemorate the 40th anniversary of the release of Steven Spielberg's iconic science fiction masterpiece, Close Encounters of the Third Kind. We are welcoming on our show Ray Morton, author of the excellent book on the making of Close Encounters, which is one of the most detailed accounts of the production of a Hollywood film in the pre-CGI days that I've had the pleasure to read. Ray is also the author of another book that I would highly recommend, King Kong, The History of a Movie Icon from Fay Ray to Peter Jackson. So, uh, thanks for coming on our show. Uh, I'm Thank Adam you Long, for having you. me. Yeah, well, you're quite welcome. Uh, I just wanted to introduce myself because I don't even think I'm Adam Long, the home video correspondent uh, who normally is uh, serving in that capacity. But uh, we are just, like I said, thrilled to have you on because uh, I'm sure I was thinking you're probably one of the most knowledgeable people on this subject, on the making of <laughs> having interviewed all these people. <laughs> <laughs> well, try tried to be thorough. Try so. I, I hope I have some useful information. You know. <laughs> <laughs> well, um, first off, I was just going to ask you, what is your first encounter with close encounters of the third kind? <laughs> right, right. Well, it's interesting. I I I knew about it before it was coming. I was a definite, very young movie geek in my day. And I used to get this magazine. I don't think it's even published anymore, but it was called Monthly Film Bullet. And it, it was the magazine that theater owners uh, used to get. And they would have very advanced information on, on films coming out that were in production. And one time I got an issue, and I opened it up, and it had a, an insert, and it was announcing the new film from the director of Jaws. And I had really liked Jaws, I don't know that I completely understood all how things fit together in those days because I was pretty young, but I remember it was, and it had the great um, tagline, close encounters of the first kind, uh, you know, sighting of a UFO, second kind uh, evidence, and third kind contact. And I thought that was really interesting, and I just started following it, and they announced that Francois Truffaut was going to be in it, and I, I don't think I'd even seen the Truffaut film at that time, but I knew what the name meant. So I was really interested in this movie. And then about a month or two before it came out, there was a giant cover story on Newsweek all about the movie. It totally grabbed my attention. And I lived in the suburbs of Connecticut at that time, so movies didn't open there until they went wide. We didn't get exclusive or, you know, um, limited release things. So the movie opened in November of 1977, and I was chomping at the bit because I wanted to see this movie so badly. <laughs> and then it finally came around in December. I went on a Wednesday night. I took my two sisters. I made my mom drop us off. We went inside. I watched this film. I didn't really know what to expect, even though I had, I had you know, uh, been prepping myself. And I was so totally blown away. I was transported, actually, by the last 30 minutes of the movie. I'd never seen a film that combined visuals and music and sound 
and really no dialogue. And it told this incredible, complete story all its own. And at the end of the movie, I was so transfixed that I just sat there staring at the screen as the end credits rolled. And I actually just sat there after they stopped rolling because I was just so taken with this film. My sister finally turned to me and said, let's go. we got to leave now. And that <laughs> woke me up, and I went with it. A week later, I went back. I said, I'm going to love this movie again, but I will never be transported in the same way, which is a shame. And darn, it happened again. I had the same feeling, and I, I ended up just sitting and staring and really taking the movie in. I've seen it probably a hundred times since. That's never happened again, but I really treasure those two experiences seeing the film. Yeah, that's uh, I in our town, and I I'm from North Carolina and grew up in a small North Carolina town. We didn't get it until February of 1978, ah, and I had okay. pretty much the yeah I had I had pretty much the same experience I think you did. Uh, my father took me to see it, uh, and it was something that he was excited about and. So it was just the two of us, father and son, and uh, I had uh, – it was just amazing. And, uh, you know, I think the two films from that year that everybody talks about, of course, are Star Wars and and Close Encounters, uh, even though Annie Hall won Best Picture. (laughs) Right. (laughs) What? What? I've never heard of that movie. (laughs) (laughs) I never heard of it. Never heard of it. And I love Annie Hall. I do. But but as far as sci-fi, I always thought it was interesting how – uh, people are always divided into two camps: those who love Star Wars and those who love Close Encounters. And I, I, I <laughs> like Star Wars a lot, but I love Close Encounters, which it sounds like you're coming from that same <laughs> wheelhouse. Yeah, yeah, pretty much. I. It's funny because Close uh, Star Wars actually, I think it opened in May of '77. For mm-hmm. whatever reason, it did not come around to our area until late August of that year. So I didn't end up seeing, I saw it, I guess what I'm getting at is I saw both movies fairly close together within only a few months. And I think Star Wars is a terrific movie, and I really liked it. Although, honestly, I think I really only fell in love with the whole Star Wars phenomenon when the second one came out, because suddenly it it had a whole other dimension. But I I really liked Star Wars, but I was always a close encounter guy. I I thought it was the better movie at the time. I still think, I mean, I think the effects accomplishments in Star Wars are spectacular, but there's something about those Douglas Trumbull visual effects and close encounters that I think still hold up and are so luminous. And you add that to the cinematography of Vilma Sigmund. And it, as I said, I like Star Wars. I was transported by close encounters. Totally agree. I feel exactly the same way. And uh, I, I was curious about your research process because this is a very thoroughly uh, researched book, and I want to go ahead and reiterate the title of the book for any of our listeners there, in case I didn't earlier. It's uh, Close Encounters of the Third Kind, The Making of Steven Spielberg's Classic Film. And uh, so I just wanted to get a little bit about your uh, research process, because it looks like you've interviewed pretty much, uh, at the time uh, of, that it was written, uh, everybody who was uh, around except maybe Spielberg. <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> Stephen was the uh, was the uh, elusive target in that one. Although his office was really nice, he was the first person I contacted because mm-hmm. I didn't. It wasn't an official sanctioned book like Columbia didn't go for it. You know, I mean, not that you know we didn't ask them to, but it, it wasn't an authorized book. 
So I wanted to make sure that, that Spielberg was aware of what I was doing. Of course, I really wanted to talk to him. So he was the first letter I sent, and I got a really nice response from his assistant. And what she basically told me was that at that point in time, he had talked about the movie all he wanted to talk about it. And they, they directed me towards certain specific interviews that he had done that, the, that according to the assistant, that was Spielberg's. Those were the best answers he could give. And they, they said, if you use those answers, that's really what he has to say about the film. Um, and they wished me luck with it. And what I'm grateful for is they didn't stand in the way of it um, because they could have. And it certainly I would have understood if he had done that. But they, they were very complimentary and encouraging about going ahead. He just did not want to participate at that point. Though so I did later send them a copy of the finished book, and I got a nice note from the assistant saying that he really appreciated the work that I had done. So I'm, I'm assuming he read it. I hope he did. <laughs> I don't know. Um, but then after that, I just I basically I went through the credits, and I made a list of every single person you know, uh, that was in the credits, and then I, you know, about that point, IMDb was kind of up and running. So there are sometimes names that aren't in the credit. And I just started contacting everybody that I could. And the, the key first interview I had was with Douglas Trumbull. Um, he was very responsive. And I sat down with him at a hotel in Los Angeles for, a, he, he gave me an hour, but we ended up being there about four hours, which was wonderful. Um, and he took me through everything, and then he put me in touch with the, his partner on the film, Richard Urisich. Um, and Richard Urisich turned out to be just the most wonderful resource. Uh, he's, he's a brilliant font of information and knowledge about visual effects, especially the way they were made back then. And he was really the day-to-day nuts and bolts guy on Close Encounters. Uh, Trumbull's Trumbull was the visionary and would come up with the big ideas and, would, and you know, develop the systems and things. But Urisich would was a cameraman, and he's the one who really got the day-to-day stuff going. So he sat down with me, and he was so generous with his time. He gave me a general interview. We spent a couple of hours talking. And then he basically said, send him anything that I needed. So everything with the special effects section I ran by him. I showed him rough drafts of things. Uh, he gave me, you know, he gave me input. He thought, you've got it right there. That you can vote on. You know, I want you to emphasize this more. You know, this isn't so important. And that was a real big help because I really worked on the special effects section first because it was going to be the hardest thing. I'm not a, I'm not a gearhead. I don't understand. I understand generally technology, but these guys have a knowledge I mean, they're magicians, the guys who made these visual effects. They're nuts and bolts cameramen, but in the end they create just this wonderful imagery. And, um, and Richard Jurisic really guided the whole visual effects section. And I wanted, I wanted him to be happy with it because he's a, he's a stickler for detail and accuracy, and he doesn't, he doesn't have a lot of patience for... Um, for accounts that are sloppy or poorly researched and things. And I, I'm the same way. So I just wanted him to be pleased with it. And uh, he really helped me a lot. And, and he put me in touch with all sorts of folks. And he also made sure that I mentioned all sorts of people who never get mentioned in these things. And I was really happy to do that and pleased to do that. 
and and that was the first part of the project. And then I I went I did a lot of research at the Academy Library, and there were a bunch of other places where I went, the American Film Institute, and I got a lot of background information from there. And then I met with Joe Alves, who was the production designer. And Joe's, Joe's like Richard Jurisich. He's a walking font of the entire history of the project, and he just remembered every detail. And he met with me a few times. We had a general interview, and then, and then he met with me a couple times to go over things. So I felt like I had these two really great resources. Um, and then I got in touch gradually with many other people. I sat down with Michael Phillips, the producer, and again, he had great insight into the early parts, the development of the project. He didn't actually work on the movie day to day when it was in production. His ex-wife Julia did, and she's passed away, so I wasn't able to talk to her. But I did talk to a lot of the production people who were able to fill me in on things. Um, so yeah, it was, it was, and it took about a year. The research took about a year, and then the writing took a bunch of months more, I think. Yeah, I was uh, noting how meticulously researched it was. I I was just uh, curious about how that all came together. So, yeah, that's uh, that's very very interesting because um, I was surprised at how big of a role that Richard Urisich plays in the book. Yes, uh, he's he's mentioned so many times, and I I just didn't. I was aware of Joe Alves contribution obviously uh yeah because he's such a he's pretty well known to people who are movie geeks like myself uh, but uh, wasn't, <laughs> me too <laughs> but wasn't as familiar with uh Urisich, and so that was I, i'm glad you illuminated his contributions in the book uh, i just wanted to maybe talk a little bit about the origins of the film because we all know that uh Spielberg was coming off of his uh, huge success with Jaws, in spite of the fact that it was such a trying production yes. physically and otherwise. And I know I was fascinated when I read your book that one of the projects that he was actually thinking about uh, uh, pursuing um, right before Jaws and possibly after was a uh, biopic of the life of the man who invented the toilet. It was what yes. called, it was, there was a script called Flushed with Pride. The, uh, Flushed with the, Pride, the story of Thomas Crapper, the inventor <laughs> of the toilet. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> I read that uh, and I laughed out loud. I'm, yeah. I'm, I'm, I have to tell you that. He worked on that with uh, Gloria Katz and Whirlwind Height, the writers of American Graffiti, of all things. <laughs> so, yeah. So that was that was interesting. He could have. I'm glad he didn't pursue that project and went with Close Encounters instead. Let's yes. put it that way. So. Well, um, his agent told him when he proposed that movie to his agent. His agent said, "If this is the kind of movie you want to make, I don't want to be your agent anymore." <laughs> that was very funny. Great <laughs> advice. Great advice. Yes. Yes. So, uh, well. The origins of the project, they are often um, misreported as Spielberg, when he was in his teens, made a feature-length Super 8 movie called Firelight, which he filmed with all of his friends uh, from high school, and he put it together and he did homemade visual effects, and the ambitious fellow that he was, even at that age, he rented a theater in his hometown in Arizona and they had a big premiere. They even had Klieg lights, apparently, which they got, I think, from a car dealer. Um, so he made this movie, which was about UFOs. 
um, and it was it was basically about light seen in the sky, and then all sorts of monstery type stuff starts happening. And it, it, it is often misreported that Close Encounters is a remake of that childhood film, and it is not. Um, the Close Encounters, obviously, he was interested in UFOs, and he was a young man when the UFO craze was happening in America, which was in the mid and late 1950s. So it was a subject that very much interested him. But the, the movie began essentially as a one-line pitch. He said he wanted to do a movie about UFOs and Watergate. And the original idea was he wanted to do a story about Project Blue Book, and he wanted to create a conspiracy thriller in which Project Blue Book was covering up uh, the truth about UFOs because that was a fairly... Um, common conspiracy theory in the late 60s and early 70s. And he came up with the idea initially around 1973. Um, and he, he started working with Julia Phillips and Michael Phillips, and they were coming off the sting. So the three of them joined forces. They pitched the project to a couple of studios. Alan Ladd Jr. at Fox was very interested, but Julia and Michael wanted to use Paul Schrader to write the screenplay and Schrader had just begun making a name for himself, and Alan Ladd Jr., who was running Fox, did not want Schrader to write the script. He felt that Schrader was too intense and too humorless to write what they were hoping was going to be, you know, a more general entertainment. Um, the Phillipses and Spielberg wanted to stick with Schrader, so they moved away from Fox and ended up making a deal with David Beagleman at Columbia. This is all around 1973, early 1974. They hired Schrader to write the screenplay and he turned in, it's, it's very famously, he turned in a script that was more Paul Schrader than it was Steven Spielberg. Um, it was a story about a, um, a Project Blue Book officer who investigated UFOs and his job was to debunk them and tell people they were imagining things. And then one night he has a close encounters close encounter on the road with a UFO, and after that he becomes a believer. They based it very much on the St. Paul story. Um, and then after that, he spends years and years trying to prove that uh, UFOs are real, and in the end he travels to a landing site and finally discovers that they are real and gets on the ship and goes away. But it's a very serious script. It's humorless. And it's much, um, the close encounter in the end of the movie isn't physical, it's mental. Uh, he has like a psychic encounter in his own mind. Spielberg hated the script. He said, this isn't what I want to do. So they started over with a writer named John Hill, and he wrote them the original idea, a, a much more mainstream thriller about uh, a cover-up of the UFO phenomenon and then the discovery at the end that it's real. By the time he finished the script, Spielberg was already in the middle of Jaws and didn't really have a lot of time to focus, but he and the Phillipses decided they no longer wanted to do a thriller. They wanted to do something with more joy and more spirit, and the thriller idea just started to bore them. They felt they weren't getting what they wanted out of the material. So after Jaws was over, Spielberg essentially started over again. He wrote an entirely new script by himself that is pretty much, I mean, a lot got changed, but the movie that we know is in that script. It's basically the story that you saw uh, a, a man, a, a telephone lineman, 
um, or power company lineman, I'm sorry, has a close encounter, becomes obsessed, and in the end follows it through to a, to a final meeting. Um, and it's a, the average man as opposed to military man. That was very important to Spielberg. And sort of that whole suburban life uh, aspect of the movie that was not in any of the earlier scripts. Uh, from there, they got, a, they got a, a yellow light from David Beagleman. They began to actively develop the movie. And after that, um, Spielberg's friends, Matthew Robbins and Hal Barwood, came in and did some rewrites. Jerry Belson did some rewrites. David Geiler supposedly did some rewrites. Um, and by the time they were shooting, and then the most wonderful thing is as they were shooting, Spielberg improvised entire sections of the story on the set. Uh, so some of the most important parts of the movie were made up on the spot, which I think is just a tribute to how his imagination just kept going and going and going. But anyway, that's that's how it got started. Yeah, I found that to be fascinating, several of the things you mentioned there. Uh, when I read your book, and I saw that Jerry Belson was one of the one of the yes. screenwriters. <laughs> yes. And, uh, that was shocking because uh, people uh, like myself, we we know him primarily for having uh, partnered up with Gary Marshall for The Odd Couple and yes. for his uh-huh. writing chores on The End, the uh, 1978 yeah. Burr Reynolds film. <laughs> you know, we don't Ooh. think of him as that guy who co-wrote or wrote a draft of Close Encounters of the Third Kind, and and yeah. then the Paul Schrader thing was uh is quite interesting too uh because you know he is not known for his humor and especially as evidenced by a taxi driver or raging bull yes. or <laughs> numerous <Yes>. other <laughs> that's not his forte so um no. but yeah that was fascinating uh to read about the the early uh screen screenplay drafts uh i as far as the um the pre-production on the film and getting a green light one of the things that fascinated me uh a lot and and i'll have to get you to talk about this was uh the, uh the the way the investors wanted to uh get a tax write off in 1975 <laughs> before they actually yeah. had any actors cast so i, I was going to get you to to kind of shed a little light on that story if you could <laughs> yeah well yeah there was in the 70s and 80s, there was a lot of early 80s, a lot of Hollywood, a lot of tax shelter stuff going on. Um, you know, they were able to write off considerable amounts of production costs if you filmed under certain conditions in certain ways. And I'm not a tax person. I don't understand the ins and outs of it. But essentially, if they could film something from the movie in the year 1975, um, then they could write off a certain amount of the percentages and save themselves a lot of money. And Columbia Pictures famously was in a lot of trouble in those days. Financially, they had almost gone under a couple of years early. So the idea to save any kind of money um, was very attractive to them. And so they had to do some sort of filming in the fiscal year of 1975. Well, the prize, you know, Jaws had taken up most of 1975 for Spielberg. He, the film came out in June, and, you know, he'd been doing publicity for it. It was a big hit, and he was all over the place. And he had been working on the script for Close Encounters, but it hadn't really come together, I mean, his version of it. You know, it was still in the very early days, but Columbia basically said, you have to film something by the end of the year. And so what they ended up deciding to do is one of the, 
one of the, the key scenes in his original concept, and then when Barwood and Robbins were working on it, it was expanded, was the air traffic control scene, which was originally the opening of the movie. Um, and if you see the movie now, there's a wonderful white from uh, uh, the radar scope where it, it goes from black and then it wipes onto the image of the radar scope. That was originally how they were going to come out of the title, um, was the screen was going to wipe and you were going to come into this uh, radar scope. Anyway, that was the only scene that didn't involve principal cast, didn't require a lot of production design because they were going to film in an actual air traffic control uh, facility, which is actually, I believe, in Lancaster, the Lancaster Palmdale uh, Air Traffic Control uh, Center out here in California. And um, so that was the one place they could get that was germane to the movie, but that didn't require a whole lot of extra preparation. So they went out there in, I believe it was November of 1975, and they basically, that was the first thing shot on Close Encounters. And it's one of my absolute favorite scenes in the movie because it's a terrific scene no matter what, but it's also a scene that shows you what a talented film director Steven Spielberg is because he makes drama out of slightly changing the focus on faces of people talking, you know, on uh, the whole group of air traffic controllers is talking. He's just subtly changing the focus to direct your attention. This, this guy was, what was he, 27, 28, 29 when he did this. It's just, it's the most amazing thing. But anyway, I'm, I'm getting long-winded. Uh, that, was, that was what they filmed in the end of 75. The rest of the movie didn't start shooting until the summer of 1976. Yeah, I found that to be fascinating uh, that they would that that was uh, that they were uh, so adamant about getting something in the can that they uh, before they had even cast anybody yes. or anything. That was just uh, that was that was fascinating. Um, but uh, so I, I and I, if memory serves, the next thing they did was to uh, well, getting the green light was an interesting story in your book too, which came down to the I believe the uh, the tarp that they were going to okay. <laughs> to erect. That's a good story well, too. Yeah. Well. Well. Yeah. What it, originally the deal was because Columbia was in such financial straits, and because Spielberg had just spent almost a year on the water in Massachusetts filming Jaws, none of them wanted to do a location movie. So the idea was they were going to maybe travel to a mountain, and it took them a while to find Devil's Tower. They always knew they were going to go to a mountain location, but Devil's Tower itself came later. But otherwise, the idea was to film all the suburban stuff on the back lot at the Burbank Studios in Burbank, um, and then to film the actual encounter, Joe Alves knew from the very beginning that they needed to do an indoor set. So that was always going to be the biggest piece of the budget and the biggest piece of the construction and everything. But originally they were going to do it on two stages at the Burbank Studios, um, now the Warner Brothers Studios. Um, and there were two stages that, could, that had a door in between them that you could open up. And the idea was, well, we'll use that amount of space. It was the stage they filmed Camelot on uh, back in the late 60s. They built that giant set there. And as they were working on the design, Al started to realize that they needed, um, they needed a much bigger space than the soundstage allotted. 
And that created a lot of tension with the front office because now they're talking about going off the lot. So suddenly they're talking about not being in a controlled situation and that what tends to happen in movies is that means the budget starts to go up. And Alves had created this idea for a set that was going to cost millions of dollars just by itself. The original number that they pitched Columbia back at the start of the project was like $3 million. I think the set ended up costing $3 million or something like that. Um, and they ended up finding an abandoned uh, air base in Mobile, Alabama, and they decided that it had two hangars that could be opened up against each other, and that was big enough for what they wanted to do. So they decided they were going to build it there, and then they decided they would film all the suburban stuff around Mobile. It's supposed to be Indiana, but it's actually Alabama. Um, and now, of course, the budget's starting to go up. Columbia's getting nervous. Um, and actually, the tarp came later, but it was that facility that made them decide that they wanted to, to film off the lot. And what, what, what ended up doing it for them was every time they complained to Spielberg and Al, I, I don't think Spielberg did this uh, quite as flamboyantly as I'm going to describe it, but as he quoted himself, he waved Jaws grosses in their face. <laughs> and, and at a certain point, Columbia thought, okay, we're just going to have to go with this. And that's really how it got going. Yes, I, I remember there was a piece of cloth that they had to get made in a certain amount of time, and they yes. basically – yeah, that's a good story if you could tell that oh, one. Oh, I'm, yeah, I'm sorry. I, I thought you yeah. were referring to the tarp later. You're no, right. that's yeah, okay. No, was, no, no, no. That's... Yeah, Joe Alves needed to wrap the entire set in this uh, black – I believe it was like a velvet cloth, and you needed so much of this to, to wrap this gigantic set that, that's right. He had to order it on a certain day in order for it to be ready when they were going to film. So he had to go to Columbia and say, are you guys making the movie or not? <laughs> and and, and they're like, all right, we're going to make the movie. And, I, and, yeah, you're right. That's exactly what got it going. <laughs> <laughs> that was just such a great story that a piece of cloth led to them making the decision to green light it. <laughs> oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. It's <laughs> awesome. So, uh, so yeah, the the production. Uh, I know they started early. Uh, the early scenes with the actual with the actors were was uh, that was done um, at the actual location in Wyoming, and I, right. I found it interesting that they all uh, had to stay in a just a very small hotel room. Most of them chose to, except for Spielberg and and some of the the more uh, key people on the production who had trailers but i thought it was i, I thought it was interesting that you, you said in the book that Truffaut actually uh opted to stay in one of the hotel rooms in the, one of these small hotels yeah. and <laughs> <laughs> well they yeah they stayed in a motel um and i believe it it was a it was quite a ways away cuz devil tower is pretty remote um mm -hmm. i went up there a few years ago it's beautiful um, but it's very remote. And now there's a campground and a little motel there, but that was not there in 1976. So the, the crew, everybody stayed at some hotel. It was like about an hour away, I think, something like that. And um, Spielberg didn't want to make that drive every day, so he, he and Richard Dreyfuss and I believe Melinda Dillon, they had trailers parked at Devil's Tower right at the foot and they just stayed out there. And of course they had amenities, they had a cook and everything. They weren't, they weren't roughing it that much, but um, that way they didn't have to make the two hour drive every day. And I think 
Truffaut stayed out one night, and he was like, that's enough. And then he went back to the hotel. <laughs> he wasn't, he wasn't going to stay out in the American wilderness <laughs> with Prairie Dog, I don't think. <laughs> that was just uh, the side of him staying at this small hotel in rural Wyoming. Just, I, yeah. I don't know, it just kind of made me laugh. <laughs> well, what, but, uh, there's a very – Joe Alves has a very funny story about that. He said that, you know, he was a giant Truffaut fan, and he so mm-hmm. wanted to impress Francois. And he said he thought Trans- Francois would be so impressed with his giant set that he built inside this airplane hangar in Mobile, Alabama. And he said that Truffaut just kept looking at it. He never said anything. And then, and then they had to do a quick knock-together set. There's a scene where uh, Melinda Dillon's character is searching for her son, and it's the scene where she sees Devil's Tower on the TV set. And she's supposed to be in a motel somewhere in the Southwest. Joe Al said he slapped together like two walls. They put a, a neon sign outside to make it look like a like a, a motel. And they shot the, He put it up in about two days. They shot it in about uh, 20 minutes, and then they knocked it down. He said when Truffaut walked on, he said, "This is a wonderful set." And he said he goes, "So he likes this dumb little motel room set, but he has nothing to say about the airplane hangar." And Al said years later, what he realized is, in France, the only thing they would ever have built was a motel room. In France, they don't make movies where they build giant, you know, giant outdoor sets inside a hangar. Truffaut had no frame of reference for it, but he had a frame of reference for a small hotel room set. So he just praised Joe Al to the sky for this little motel <laughs> thing he knocked together in two days. So. That is a great story. That's great. Yeah, um, yeah well, I'll just talk a little bit about the uh, – and if you've got some, some more time here. I know we said 30 minutes, but uh, if you've got a few more minutes, uh, just sure, talk sure. A, a little bit about the uh, the production uh, aspect of it while they were in Mobile, uh, Alabama. I know it was uh, summer of 76, and it was really – um, kind of uh, difficult uh, physically for some of the actors and, and uh, with the heat and all that. So I thought I'd get you to talk a little bit about that because that's where they moved, I believe, after the uh, the Wyoming shooting portion of the right, film. Right, yeah. Uh, Joe Alves had an interesting statement. He said that about one-third of the movie takes place on the set in Mobile, but it was where they spent about 60% of their shooting time. So, yeah, they started up in Wyoming at Devil's Tower and all those areas around there. And then they went to Mobile, and they basically shot on this big set um, in about three different uh, concentrated periods of time. And then in between, while they were rearranging things, because they, they had to shoot the set before the mothership arrived, and then they had to shoot the set after it arrived, uh, which required them to put, the bottom half of the mothership built it on the set. So they had a break. So essentially they shot a bunch of stuff on the stage at Mobile, and then they went out around in the area. All of Roy Neary's suburban home stuff was done in an actual suburban tract in Mobile. Again, it's supposed to be Indiana, but it was it's in Mobile. Joe Alves found it, and it's a real house that was they filmed in it. They knocked out walls. They had to do all sorts of things. Uh, but that was done there. And actually, all of this where Richard Dreyfus is um, looking for Melinda Dillon at the train station, which is supposed to be Wyoming, that was also done in Alabama. And all of this stuff uh, at Jillian's house was also done in Alabama. Um, so all of that stuff that's supposed to be all around the country was all filmed um, around the same area where this airplane hangar was. The airplane hangar, the one stage they had, 
what they call the Box Canyon set. That's the landing site for the for the mothership in the end of the movie, and that's where they needed that that backing that you're referring to. And then the second one, they had workshops, but they also built what was called Crescendo Summit. That's the piece of road where Richard Dreyfuss and Melinda Dillon first see the UFOs when they come around the corner. That was an indoor set that was constructed inside the second hangar, and a lot of footage was done there, like three major sequences are done there. Um, so, yeah, and it was very hot. Mobile is a hot place, and it's a humid place. It was so humid that every so often the set would make its own rain. Um, uh, clouds, the humidity would collect at the top of the, the airplane hangar, and it would start to rain on everybody. Um, Dreyfus said it was so hot, he went up in the rafters once to look at, uh, they were like, they drew a lot of camera angles from up in the rafters. He went up to look at it, and he saw grips, he said, like dropping like flies because it was so hot up in the upper reaches of the, of the, um, of the airplane hangar. And uh, someone ended up getting, like, they had a daily popsicle run. Everybody got a popsicle because that was the way they would cool themselves down while they were filming. So. Yeah, that's that was fascinating, too. And I also read, uh, I remember seeing in your book that uh, it was actually so humid in there that grass actually started growing at one point, I think. Yes. <laughs> they, actually, they brought in um, dirt to the Crescendo Summit set had actual dirt piled on top of it. It was, a, it was a steel structure and then plaster and things, but they trucked in dirt, and I believe they also trucked in some dirt for the hillside around the big set, and yes, it was so hot and had the humidity and it had the rain, so actual grass start, did start to grow on the set, which which does not usually happen. So that was pretty amazing, you know. <laughs> <laughs> that was um yeah, that was pretty pretty spe- spectacular uh, detail that I was unaware of until I uh, yeah. until I read it in your book there. Uh yeah, and and so uh well we'll talk a little bit about the special effects uh, uh that Trumbull was I think he was working simultaneously on a lot of the effects while they were shooting in Mobile. And he had a, if memory serves, he had a crew uh, around the clock, seven days a week, and, and all that. Uh, yeah, that came a little later. Uh, yeah, okay. he was on set for most of the shooting. They originally had a different plan. The the visual effects ended up being done the way they were done, which I'll talk about in a minute. But originally, the idea was they wanted to produce a lot of the effects ahead of time. Trumbull was a big fan of the front screen projection process. When his idea was to do the effect and then put the actors on the set, put it, build the set in front of a giant front screen projection uh, screen, and then do it all without having to do optical compositing later. That ended up not working because front projection turned out to be really, really hard to get to perfect. Um, but Trumbull was there, and he was the one. There was a um, it was an original idea. This, this was back in the gritty 70s when everybody wanted things to look as real as possible. The original plan was they were going to build lights into the set of the, of the landing strip and then use those lights to essentially light the scene. But they needed so much light for the visual effects, and the set was so big that they ended up doing a lot of artificial lighting that they had not originally planned to do and Vilmo Sigmund was in charge of the cinematography, and he ended up getting in trouble because he was being blamed for all the time it took to light the set, even though he said, he goes, the original plan, which he did not come up with, was 
to not light the set. So he they but Doug Trumbull was the guy who said you guys are going to need way more light so that they could shoot in 65 millimeter because all the visual effects were done in 65 millimeter and that that required a tremendous amount of light to get a good image. So Trumbull was really responsible for sort of restructuring the way the lighting was going to be done on the stage. And they filmed a couple of test things, but really when they when the movie was over, they really they didn't have to start from scratch, but they had to kind of restart the visual effects process. And they the filming ended in, um, at the end of the summer of 1976, and then there were some reshoots or additional shooting at the end of the year. But essentially from the end of the summer until the release a year and several months later, Trumbull and his team were working not necessarily around the clock. They got there at the end of the schedule, but they were working every day, all day, on just creating these effects. It was all done in a little workshop building down in Marina del Rey, California. I've been down there a few times. You, from the outside, it's the most boring place in the world. It's just a little building. They built a smoke room so that they could film the effect, the uh, UFOs with all the glowing lights. You need smoke to do that. They had another stage where they shot matte paintings, and they had an optical printer, and they just spent months shooting all the different pieces, combining them. Things wouldn't work right. They'd redo it. They'd take it apart. Um, they just worked uh, tremendously hard to perfect what I think are still effects that have never been equaled as far as I'm concerned. Um, just gorgeous pieces of work, you know. I totally agree, and the amount of detail is, is amazing. I just revisited the film again just a couple of nights ago just to, to be up to speed here, and I, I, I was amazed to find out that they created a lot of the stars that you see in the sky. That was done yes. by Trumbull, which I always assumed, well, they just had a, a nice uh, starlit <laughs> night, and they went out and yeah. shot it, and, and uh, I was wrong. <laughs> Yeah, well, in those you can do it probably now, but in those days you couldn't photograph stars. You needed too much light. Mm-hmm. Um, so anytime you see stars in that movie, it's, they're not they're not actual stars. They were mostly created by a wonderfully talented guy named Robert Swart, who was a, a, an award-winning animator, and uh, he came to work with Trumbull on different projects, and he was in charge of creating the starscapes and then putting them into the shots, they did a lot of that stuff, uh, what they call first generation, where they'd film a take and then they wouldn't develop it and they'd have a little matte line blocking out the place where the stars were and then they would create these star fields on an animation stand and then re-expose the film now with a matte blocking the original photography so that they, they call it burning in, but they could burn the stars into the original negative and in, in visual effects in those days, getting things in the original negative was the, was the holy grail because the more you're on the original negative, the clearer and more detailed the, the image is. If you have to do a lot of reprinting and optical printing, the image starts to degrade over time. And so they did a lot of these stars right onto the original 65-millimeter negatives. And the the special effects were all shot in 65 millimeter because it's a much bigger uh, image surface. And the idea was when those images were shrunk down, they wouldn't look uh, grainy or faded the way visual effects could sometimes look because they were going down a generation 
from an overly detailed image to begin with, so the, the reduction would match the original 35 millimeter image. That's one of the reasons the effects look so good. But the star feels, what Bob Swartz said, he said that, because I told him once, I said, I'm just so in awe, you know, the stars are beautiful. He goes, eh, you should have seen what they look like in the original 65 millimeter. <laughs> Apparently, <laughs> in the original tape, they were even more breathtaking. I couldn't imagine that, but he, he said he's always a little disappointed in the actual, <laughs> the actual release. So, yeah. <laughs> oh, that's, that's, that's great. Uh, yeah, I, I was, you know, it's amazing to me to think that there's, and I, I think if I uh, remember correctly, that there was many, as 15 separate pieces of film in some shots, as 15 separate things that have been shot at different times that were you know layered yes. and and matted together and it just it looks so seamless it's amazing uh, that that was the genius of Doug Trumbull and Richard Urasich and their whole team it was uh, called the Future General Company which I love that and everyone knows ILM but I I love Future General I think it's a wonderful name for an effects company but they they were masters at detail. They were masters at, they were all, Richard had said once, he said, the difference between modern special effects with computers and the ones they did is that everything we did was photography based. Now, of course, everything is computer based. Um, and he said the thing with photography is it required it was all photographic processing. You had to understand photography. You had to understand math, do all the formulas. You had to understand how to apportion the frames and things. But they just, they were really good at paying attention to those details. So they could take 15 different elements, put them together. It was a laborious process, and it didn't always work the first or second or even the fifth time. They had to do a lot of, you know, finessing. But when the images were done, you know, I mean, as far as I'm concerned, there's not a dud in that batch, you know. There's, there's not really one effect you can point to where you can say, boy, that doesn't work. They're all just really technically perfect, you know. This is true. I feel exactly the same way. And uh, so we'll, we'll talk a little bit about the post-production. Uh, I, I know that um, they kept having to reshoot scenes that they had not had the chance to or just uh, weren't able to shoot for whatever reason uh, during the actual production, or Spielberg kept getting new ideas. I know that right up until yeah. the last minute, so that was another <laughs> thing. So we could talk a little bit about that. Someone said they had to pry the movie out of his hands to finally release it because he just – Spielberg was great at just building on things. And, and in the actual movie itself, the, the one thing I love is – everything with those wonderful hand signs where they teach the people hand signs and then in the end the little alien gives you the hand sign. Um, all of that was improvised. None of that was in any of the scripts. They made that stuff up on the spot. And it's such a wonderfully uh, important part of the movie and integral that I just think that's amazing. And he was doing things like that all the time. But the, the, major, the two major reshoots they did, or not reshoots, additional shoots, um, they made the bulk of the movie in the summer of 1976 in Wyoming and Mobile. Then they took it back and Spielberg started editing it. And then at a certain point, he had always had a scene in the script where the Truffaut's team came upon uh, a bunch of airplanes that had been uh, taken in, the war, in World War II and then returned, and originally in the middle of a jungle. And the idea was Truffaut was going to paddle up the Amazon and uh, he was going to find um, he was going to find 
uh, these planes in the middle of a hacked out part of the jungle. Um, they didn't have enough money to shoot that, and Columbia just said, like, you guys have spent too much money. We're not going to shoot that. Um, and Spielberg kept asking them to. So finally they agreed to do that. So he went um, – was actually out in the desert in California outside of Los Angeles where they created that junkyard set in supposedly in Mexico. And so they allowed him to shoot that. That was a little bit later in 1976. He'd always wanted to do a, um, a scene where they discovered the musical signs, uh, the musical sounds, I'm sorry. And uh, there were different ideas for that, but eventually he got the idea that he wanted to set it in India. And Columbia approved that because they had money. Currency in those days, foreign currency, couldn't be taken out of India. So Columbia had all this money in banks over there from the movies they had shown in India that they couldn't take out. So they had to do something with it. So that financed the India shoot. They went over there, and that's where you got that wonderful scene where they hear the sounds for the first time, uh, the, you know, the, the humans. And then the final bit of work they shot, um, when Spielberg put the entire movie together, there was a lot of confusion over um, the story didn't quite make sense. The, the, the Francois Truffaut part of the story was very vague. You saw these guys running around, but you never really understood exactly what they were up to. And it was kind of explained at the end, uh, you know, oh, we created this fake, uh, you know, gas thing, and we're, we're really plotting to build this uh, landing strip at Devil's Tower. But in the original cut, none of that was explained. So when they looked at it, they realized that there was a lot that needed to kind of be laid out. So what they did is they brought in Matthew, uh, Hal Barwood and Matthew Robbins to write a couple of extra scenes. And then they did a lot of that filming right at the end of 1976. So those scenes were, um, there's the scene where the people are in the radio telescope and they essentially discover the coordinates for Devil's Tower. Um, that was filmed then. And then all of the stuff in the warehouse where they're, you hear the guys plotting, like we need to come up with something that's going to get everybody out of the area that scene was an additional scene. Both of those scenes were shot at uh, the Burbank Studios. The scene where the guys get on the bus to actually leave is, is the mill at, at Burbank Studios, which is now Warner Brothers, but that's where they build all the sets. They just use that as a, as a warehouse. So those scenes were all shot to, to, to clarify the story. Um, and, and the interesting part about that is Bob Balaban's entire job in the movie changed. Uh, originally he was just a translator working for Francois Truffaut. When they filmed these new scenes where they needed to find the coordinates of Devil's Tower to explain to the audience why they were going to Devil's Tower, they suddenly changed his job. Now he was a cartographer who could read maps, uh, who also happened to speak French and was hired to be Truffaut's, um, Truffaut's translator. And then they filmed the introduction of that when they did the, the, desert, the Mexican desert sequence. I just think it's hysterical that a year after he was done filming, his entire park became a completely different park. Uh, and he has a good sense of humor about that in his own book. Um, so, yeah, a lot of that was all done. And then uh, they did a big stunt where the police car goes flying through the air. That was, I think, one of the last things shot. And that was filmed down in Long Beach, California. All of this was in the late winter, early, or late 1976, early 1977. Yeah, that's very, 
very uh, very interesting. Yeah, and and you, speaking of the flying police car, I was uh, yeah. another great detail was the was uh, that I, I was reading in your book about uh, the the actual chase where the police cars are are chasing the uh, the the UFOs. And I meant to yes. mention this earlier that they did this. They got these cars up to speed and were going at such a high rate of speed inside these airplane hangars in Mobile, Alabama. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> well, that chase was filmed all over the place which is kind of funny um yeah yeah the actual scenes where they come around the corner because there's that wonderful scene where the ufos first appear to richard dreyfus and melinda dillon and then mm-hmm. seconds later the police cars come around that was all filmed in in the hangar so they had to kind of back up the other end of the hangar and they all had to get up to speed and come roaring around that curve and not go flying off the set because it was really just a set. It wasn't the most sturdy thing in the world. Uh, so you're driving two heavy police cars. <laughs> that was, it, was a, it was a little gutsy, I think. But, yeah, that was all done in Mobile, and then the rest of it was filmed in California months afterwards. So, it's, uh, yeah, and then, and then, of course, there's that great shot where the police cars all park and they, the policemen get out and you see the UFOs flying off in the distance, that's actually the only completed front projection shot in the entire movie. That was how they originally would do everything. That was all done in Mobile also. Oh, that's fascinating. It really is. Uh, but And it looks so wonderful, I guess, thanks to uh, Michael Kahn's great editing, for one thing. he's. Uh, yeah. And this was the first film that he collaborated with Spielberg on. Uh, originally, yes. I think Verna Fields was his cutter for Jaws, and she departed company, and we really don't know why. <laughs> yeah, it's a little... Well, the, the, after Jaws, she was made an executive at Universal. She actually became a production executive. Um and Spielberg asked for her to come work on Close Encounters because they had done such great work together on Jaws. But then somewhere along the line, she was actually announced, when the original production announcement, Verna Fields was supposed to cut. The, the rumor has always been that when Jaws came out, a lot of Jaws was a very troubled production, and a lot of it was blamed on Spielberg. This is before it came out because they're like, well, you put a 27-year-old kid in charge of a movie. Of course you're going to have all this stuff. And when the movie turned out to be a terrific movie, a lot of people gave credit to Verna Fields. And Verna did a wonderful job cutting that film. It's a wonderfully edited movie. But there became this kind of rumor that she saved the movie, that Spielberg had delivered kind of a dud, and that, and that it was only Verna Fields' expertise that, that really um, got it going again. And... Uh, Spielberg's complaint was that he felt like in a lot of interviews, Verna didn't do enough to sort of dissuade people from thinking that. And I, and so supposedly he decided he didn't want to work with her. Although the interesting part is her son, Rick, who I also talked to for the book, he worked, he was Spielberg's personal assistant on Jaws. And then he was his personal assistant on Close Encounters. So if there was bad blood, he still kept the sun on. So I have a feeling that story has been blown a little bit out of proportion. I'm, I'm sure there were probably some tensions there, but uh, but I, I, I think I think that maybe people try to make a little more out of it than maybe there really was, you know. I think you're probably right, and I guess it was, yeah. uh, they, as they say, all's well that ends well since he wound up uh, collaborating yeah. with Michael Kahn all those, for all these many, many films that they've worked together on, and, and they seem to be a really, really good fit uh, as far yeah, as they, uh, and, 
He cut every Spielberg movie after that except for E.T. That's the only one he didn't edit. Everything else, he it's been Michael Kahn and John Williams the whole way, you know. That's amazing. It really is when you think about it. And we'll uh, well, uh, we'll just wrap it up here and talk a little bit about the uh, the special edition. We can't uh, we we can't go without mentioning that because that was unprecedented at the time. Uh, that at I don't think time, that had ever yeah. been attempted. So. Well, he Spielberg wanted to. They, they always released the film, re-released the movie in those days. That movie would come out about a year and a half later. It would get a re-release. Then it would go to TV. And Spielberg had been unhappy with some of the editing in the original version. And plus, there were some scenes he still wanted. There was always a scene in the script where they discovered a um, a ship in the desert. Uh, that had been dropped there by UFOs, and they, they never filmed it because of budgetary reasons. And he really wanted to film that sequence. So they made a deal with Columbia to finance additional shooting. And basically the, the big two big scenes were they put in the scene with the ship in the desert. Um, they did some re-editing. They took out some things. They put in some things that had been shot originally but not included. And then... They, of course, they wanted to take you inside the mothership. Now, there's always been a little bit of a weird rumor about that. Spielberg has stated on a number of occasions that um, Columbia basically told them, we'll do, we'll do your research and your re-edit. We'll finance it, but you need to give us more of the mothership, so you need to take us inside. Uh, I've actually heard from different people that Spielberg really loved that idea. He's he sort of been distance himself from it now because it didn't actually turn out very well. But um, so they, they also, they re-brought in the special effects guys. Trumbull and Yurisich did not work on that sequence, but Bob Swartz supervised that sequence where they go inside the mothership. So that was, the movie was re-edited, these new scenes were put in, and it was re-released in the summer of 1980. Um, and it did well. It didn't do spectacularly well. Um, some reviewers loved it. Some did not. I'm one of the people who prefers the theatrical, the original release cut to the special edition. I don't think going inside the mothership worked. I don't think anybody in the end really thought it worked. And Spielberg actually did a second special edition in 1997, and that has a couple of different names, but the one that it's mostly known by is the ultimate director's cut. And that's basically the re-edit from the special edition with some of the new footage cut in, but the, the trip inside the mothership was dropped, and Spielberg has made funny comments about it, and you will never see it again. <laughs> so it's all, uh, <laughs> it's all gone. So, yeah, there were actually two special editions, of course, <laughs> believe it or not. Uh- I totally agree with you on the uh, the the inclusion of the uh, the interior of the mothership because when I was a kid I was so excited about the prospect of seeing that but as an adult yes. watching it when you see it it just ruins the entire editorial flow of the final act of the film it's almost like the film just comes to a complete standstill yeah. while you're sitting there while the camera just goes you know, gives you the inside view of the ship. And then the movie picks back up, but by that time it's almost broken its spell, unfortunately yes. for me. Yeah, and that's the problem I had with it. I I agree, and I think uh, Michael Phillips said a funny thing. He said everybody thought that we wanted to see the inside of the mothership. Turns out we didn't want to see the inside of the mothership. <laughs> you know, as it, <laughs> as it went out. I I agree with you. I think it interrupts the flow. 
The other thing, it creates a very strange thing in some people's minds, because if you recall that scene, basically Richard Dreyfuss goes up and he looks up, and the joke some people call it, he looks up at the lobby of the Hyatt Hotel. That's kind of what they felt it looked like a little bit. And it ends with a sort of an explosion of, of, I can only call it fairy dust, that comes sprinkling down. And then the next shot is the Carlo Rambaldi puck alien coming out of the ship to give the hand sign farewell to Francois Truffaut. There are many people who, the way that scene is edited, think that that's Richard Dreyfuss who has been transformed by this fairy dust. Uh, That was nobody's intention making the movie, but I actually understand why people think that. Um, because if you're reading it a certain way, it, it looks like that. But your point is totally correct, which is none of that, all of that just gets in the way of the wonderful transcendence of the original sequence. And Spielberg put that sequence back when the ultimate director's cut came out, and that's the one that you'll see now if you see the film on home video or in a theater. Yeah, and I think that's the, that's the best way to go about it uh, because it's uh, it's it's much tighter, but it doesn't include the, uh, the 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 unnecessary stuff as well. So it's uh, I, I think that is the preferred version. And uh, I I also remember seeing that uh, in the special edition, uh, maybe I'm correct. I might be incorrect about this that uh, they wanted to include more of the uh, when you wish upon a star in the uh, yes. the John Williams score. Yeah, um, in Spielberg's original draft of the script and in every draft of the screenplay, he had indicated when you wish upon a star. Uh, He wanted to use it at the end of the movie. Um, And in the original preview of the film, they did a preview in uh, September of 1977 in Dallas. Uh, They had the the actual song from Pinocchio. They actually tracked in the ukulele song. And... um, Apparently, it got a very mixed reaction, and I I think the feeling was that it was probably, like Spielberg said, that was the hook he hung the movie on. That's what inspired him and gave him the structure, but when they actually put the song in the movie, it was almost too literal was sort of, I think, the feeling. So they took it out, and John Williams put a little bit of it in his score, like right when Richard Dreyfuss is going up into the mothership, you hear a little trace of When You Wish Upon a Star, which I think it just touches on it, and it's kind of beautiful. When they did the special edition, they didn't change the movie score, but in the end of the, when the credits are rolling, originally after the, the main music concludes, there was sort of a reprise of John Williams' chase music, and they took that out, and they put in an instrumental version of When You Wish Upon a Star, uh, and that was in the special edition. And I, I think that's a better idea than the actual song itself, though it is, it's still almost maybe too much. Uh, my, big, my big complaint besides some editorial choices and the inside of the mothership of the special edition versus the original edition is the original edition is very subtle. The special edition is, is, is less subtle in a number of different ways. And I, I love the rendition of When You Wish Upon a Star, but I, I think it may be too much. And when he went back to the, do the ultimate cut, he took, he took When You Wish Upon a Star out and replaced it with the original end music, though it is on the soundtrack album for the ultimate director's cut. The soundtrack album ends with When You Wish Upon a Star, 
the movie ends with John Williams chase music. So he kind of, he got it both ways, I guess. <laughs> you know. Yeah. So, yeah, that's, I, I just thought the, uh, that that was uh, worthy of mentioning because they did pay quite a bit of money, I think, for the use of that. So that was, yes. that was quite, it wasn't something that came cheaply or that they did, uh, <laughs> <laughs> you know, but, uh, well, listen, this has really been great. We appreciate you taking the time uh, to give us a little insight into the creation of this great science fiction film that we both love and many other people love as well. And again, I want to reiterate your book, uh, Close Encounters of the third kind the making of steven spielberg's classic film that's available uh wherever you get your uh your books uh, and especially yep. at amazon of course and uh, you yes. can go right on there and i highly recommend uh, anybody who's listening who's a big fan of this film or or maybe just a casual fan to get this book because it's a ter- tremendously uh well-researched uh de- and detailed look at the production of a of a major hollywood film in the, in the uh, pre-cgi days and uh, uh do you have anything else you're working on? I'll let you tell us about it if you have something. Uh, a couple of things. I can't really talk about them right now, but uh, kind of along the same lines. I'm hoping to do the same thing with another movie that I think, if you like Close Encounters, hopefully you like the movie that I'm researching now. But uh, that's all I can say at the moment. But try to try to keep at it. 